Okay, welcome to the Sport and History podcast, brought to you by the British Society of Sports History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. I'm Raph Nicholson from Bournemouth University, and I'm Jeff Levitt's co-convener of the BSSH's seminar at the IHR, and I'll be acting as the presenter today instead of Jeff. Um, so Happy New Year to all our listeners. In 2020, we're carrying on in the tradition of interviewing researchers working in the, in the field of, of sports history. Um, today I'm joined by Lydia Furs, who is a PhD candidate at De Montford University. She's on a collaborative doctoral programme with the World Rugby Museum in Twickenham. Her PhD research is funded by the AHRC and facilitated by Sporting Heritage. And her thesis is entitled Women in Rugby Union, A Social and Cultural History, 1880 to 2016. She's expecting to submit in June 2021, or at least she was last time we spoke about this. Um, hi Lydia, welcome to the podcast. Hi, so let me start with that dreaded question then, how's the PhD going? It's going okay, I think that's a, okay is a good <laughs> medium for it, isn't it? So I've um, recently become a third year student as of last October, although that still seems very quickly, I don't know where that time has gone really between October and now. Um, but I am definitely over the halfway mark in terms of what I've produced so far and it's just continuing that and making sure that it all comes together nicely. Um, I'm, I'm now getting more excited about what the final product is and getting more nervous about what comes after the PhD, <laughs> as you do at this Oh point. yeah, it's the dilemmas of the final year. It's yeah. like the, the end is in sight, but then you have to think about post-PhD. Yeah. Um, okay, well we... I think um, sometimes we have a bit of a tendency to think about women's rugby as quite a recent phenomenon, um, especially by comparison to other women's sports. Um, is that accurate? I think it's really important. So my work covers women playing rugby union from 1880 to 2016, which is a huge time period. But the earliest example of women participating in rugby does come from 1887. Um, there's a bit of a debate about a game in 1881, um, but I tend to think it's more football than rugby. Um, and what we see is that there are these examples consistently from the uh, from the late 19th into the early 20th century of women playing rugby but not necessarily in the meaningful way that modern women's rugby is today. And the origins of modern women's rugby is very much in the 1970s and the 1980s. So looking at, in the UK, the late 1970s, women's rugby takes up in the universities. It's a little bit earlier in America, so early 1970s. And in New Zealand, it's actually a little bit delayed, so more into the 1980s, almost 1990s, before they're really... Um, taking strides in modern women's rugby, but then they become very dominant very quickly. Um, so it is a fair assessment to say that women have been playing modern women's rugby, the game that we know today, for less time, but I think that's almost what makes it distinct, because if they had started playing earlier, women wouldn't necessarily be playing by the same rules as men, and we would see more adaptations between the game, as we see in other women's versions of men's sports um, right you'll be able to tell me there's there's a few differences between women's cricket and men's cricket yeah, to guess, an extent yeah right? so I guess in uh, test matches for example women don't play five day tests um, and they have they generally play with a, a smaller ball and things like that um, so that's that's quite an interesting thing so whereas rugby it's it's completely the same right so exactly all those kind of adaptations that were put in place as paternalistic concerns about women's ability to do sports so having a smaller pitch size maybe less players maybe a smaller ball size playing for less time 
all those kind of things are, are evident in some of the earlier versions of women's rugby. People tried to adapt it to feminise the game. And what we see by actually women's rugby not taking off until the later period is that there's this wave of why are women doing it because they want to play rugby and nobody's really messing around with well women can't play rugby so they have to do it like this mm-hmm. it's just women women going to do it going to do it there's a lot of voices who say women can't do it full stop but they're not saying women can't do this they can do that they're just saying women can't do it and other people are saying no we can and they're playing exactly the same as the men why do you think it is that um, it takes women's rugby kind of longer to, I guess, stay form a, go- uh, a governing body and things like that compared with other women's sports? Because I guess we think of the interwar period as a, this really big expansion and a time when lots of governing bodies form for cricket, netball, um, athletics, etc. Um, but yeah, as you say, rugby is quite a lot later. Yeah. Well, the examples that I found of women participating in rugby union earlier are very localised so they don't tend to um, lead to regional um, or even league competitions Um, there are a couple of um, examples that do um, and one particular is Barrette in France it's again it's a feminised version of women's rugby they do specifically make law changes Um, but that actually has a national championship and is ongoing throughout the 1920s and kind of ends in the 1930s but it never gets to the international stage and what we generally see with these other examples is that it's one club it's normally wives and girlfriends associated with the men's club playing say as a curtain raiser or as as a half-time spectacle within the men's game so maybe only 10 minutes and it's not taken seriously and when women do try to take it seriously there is a large amount of resistance to women playing rugby and that's why those earlier examples aren't successful at founding um, more of an independent administrative body but the later examples, although women's rugby is still really closely associated with men's rugby when it reappears, um, there's less legitimacy to the men saying, no, you can't do this. And the women tend to, when that when that barrier comes up, they just say, okay, we're going to do it on our own. And that's that formation of the independence and what actually leads to national governing bodies coming about. Um, and that, I believe, is part of kind of a larger societal idea of equality that was part of the 1970s and 1980s that women just felt that they could they should be able to do these things and there were more legal reasons why men couldn't just say no you can't do it (laughs) is it partly about just comes down to the fact that rugby is so physical rugby union is really closely associated with masculinity and I my research doesn't contradict that in a way in fact my research looks at the reason why rugby is so closely linked with masculinity and why it's been so difficult for women to access rugby union because inherently no activity is gendered it's all a societal argument and our preconceptions about certain activity requiring certain skills that are more associated with one gender or the other Um, just the same as cricket's not inherently a man's sport but it's male dominated no sure but one of the things that I guess that female cricketers are able to do quite um, 
you know, relatively early on, so from the 19th century, is say, well, cricket's a very graceful sport, um, and you know, it doesn't involve physical contact, um, and you know, therefore, I think it's maybe easier for them to make the case that their role in the sport is legitimate. And legitimacy is a really interesting word, isn't it? Um, whereas I feel like for uh, women's rugby union that must be harder. It is definitely a lot harder, and particularly the earlier examples, there's a lot of medical arguments against women competing in rugby union, in rugby league, um, to a certain extent in in football as well. Um, But the fact that it is a contact sport, that women are getting dirty playing it, um, that the sport isn't played to its best abilities in skirts, I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh, yeah. I'm trying to think about people playing rugby in... There are examples. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I've got some photos from New Zealand from sort of the early 20th century of women playing in skirts, but um, they very quickly moved to shorts, and then there's this argument that it's inappropriate not only for the women to be playing it, but for people to be observing the women playing it. And ultimately, all of this societal pressure against women playing rugby means that there's no support in the education system, so teachers aren't allowing girls to participate in rugby at school um, and rugby just can't get a stronghold so all of these times that a group of women do come together and want to play rugby even if they want to continue it they haven't got a new generation coming through and then when they start to face barriers from um, from societal pressure against them playing it um, they really do struggle so what is it about um is it all about 70s feminism then kind of second wave feminists sort of coming along and and trying to demand something different for women that's what i'm working on at the moment okay and what's really interesting is that rugby develops in very different national contexts and the word feminism has definitely been reclaimed by our generation but in the 1970s and 1980s particularly 1980s there's a real backlash against the word feminism and a lot of women reject it so when you're actually looking at the primary resources when you're talking to people from that era they're not necessarily identifying what they were doing as part of feminism equally feminism doesn't seem to have taken much notice of sports to start with you know i wouldn't say that the women's rugby is a physical extension of second wave feminism what second wave feminism did was a wider social and cultural change that potentially influenced women's ability to say yes I am going to do this but what my research is showing is that women have always wanted to play rugby Mm. it's just that those kind of social and cultural movements allowed a backstop that when women started and they wanted to continue they were able to because you're doing oral histories as part of your thesis aren't you Um, which I also did my research into women's cricket and that is one of the things that comes up time and again is um, you know we weren't feminists and we reject that that terminology um, and that we were kind of just doing it because we wanted to play um, I think it wasn't a protection a side of things in okay. that as well don't you think like um, because there was such a negative image of what a feminist was and I think it's the same with um, the so-called spectre of the lesbian in sports so women are quite often very quick to say oh no there weren't many lesbians in our team or that wasn't me and it's a homo negativism that protects the the sport from those accusations and in the same way i I think we can see that a bit with the with the rejection of feminists because feminists became associated with lesbian um what 
is really important to note is that there were lesbians in the sport and I think equally there were feminists in the sport but it's not to say that the whole demographic of the whole sport was either feminist or lesbian. That's really interesting and I think um, some of those issues we're still seeing today because we often hear people saying oh women's sport um, it's much it's much easier to be openly gay um, if you're a sport if you're in a kind of elite level sportswoman than if you're an elite level sportsman. But I think it's um, it's it's uh, equally as difficult, just in different ways, right? Yeah. Yeah. No. Definitely. And um, <laughs> you know, some people argue that it's easier to be out as a female athlete because you're actually not in the public eye as much. You're not getting the media attention. Um, but that is rapidly changing over the past 18 months we've seen this huge increase in in the media attention on women's sports um and yeah there are these there's still this ongoing concern um as if be as if um being being homosexual is a negative thing and i think that that's what's really difficult to overcome when you're looking at texts from the 1970s and 1980s that are really much denying um, the existence of um, homosexuality within sports is that it's because they can't perceive it as a positive thing and so we need to kind of go beyond that and you know question those individuals and kind of try and get that conversation going. Which is one reason why oral history is so important yeah. when you're looking at the history of women's sport I guess. Definitely. Um, equally you know oral histories are very limited in what they can represent you know you speak to that one person and you can't say that that one person's experience speaks for the whole era the whole country the whole sport that they're talking about um, but it's an impossible task to collect an oral history interview with every single person yeah. so you, you've got to be really careful about how you use those um, especially when oral histories can sometimes contradict written sources as I just said written sources you need to take with a pinch of salt so you always have to take oral histories with a pinch of salt as well yeah sure and I think sometimes some of these subjects can be quite difficult to raise as well I found it really difficult to talk about sexuality in my interviews with female cricketers because I felt that there were lots of very safe subjects and they were very happy to talk about their cricketing memories and um, and to some extent some quite personal things about you know husbands and children and things like that Um, but sexuality and lesbianism still felt quite a taboo thing for me to raise I don't know if you've experience similar no definitely and especially when um you're talking to people who aren't known to be out it can be very difficult to raise that that subject because equally you're making a recording and it's going to go out into the world and you don't want to be responsible if somebody doesn't necessarily believe that they'll be accepted by society for that sexuality because people do still experience discrimination um based on sexuality um Equally, when you've got a rapport going with someone and it and it seems natural to ask those questions, I've had really positive conversations with people, but I have shied away from it in other situations. Yeah, it's one of the things about oral history interviewing is you're you're developing your skills all the time when you're trying to work out whether it's okay to ask things and mm. you have to just gauge it in every specific situation. I think what I found as well in terms of I've always considered my interviews as oral histories and I really want them to be oral histories but I'm not doing five or six hour in-depth interviews with women. I've got very limited time with people. I've often had to travel long distances to speak to them and as much as people are kind of willing to 
to sit down with and chat with me again. I haven't actually done that with any of my participants. Um, so you only get this little snapshot and it's very dictated by the questions that you ask. So I have been trying to challenge myself. I always put those questions on my on my list of things I'd like to ask, but you know, it just depends on that rapport as to whether you actually get around to that set of questions or not. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, often, I've often thought it would be interesting to go back to some of my interviewees now, and um, we talked about feminism earlier, and now that there has been this slight cultural shift, which I feel has been a very, very recent thing, maybe in the last three years since I did all my interviews, and ask them again about feminism and see whether I get a different response. But then I suppose you're balancing that with you want to get a multitude of voices, don't you? Yeah. Um, so if you're just going back and talking to the same person then that doesn't you're not getting that representation i mean if it answers your question i've been doing interviews the last 12 months and i've asked about feminism and people have still been rejecting the term okay that is interesting so um you know that i wouldn't necessarily imagine that there's been a direct shift there might have been in some of your participants but i think it's a generational thing more than a sort of cultural thing people um, the younger generation are more willing to identify with the word feminist. Mm. Equally, there's still you know, problems with it, and there's a wide range of feminism that's going on, and people are using it in different ways, but um, generally, it's a safer word than it was previously. Yeah. What do you think are the methodological um, difficulties in doing what you're doing? And I guess what I tried to do as well in trying to tell the story of one sport over quite a long period of time that's not really been studied at all before are you struggling with that at all I think it it's a really good question because you can't see events as happening in isolation and looking at just one sport can tend to make you want to exceptionalize and the fact that when um, there are existing studies of women's sports that tend to marginalise women's rugby within it, it makes it, it pushes you more towards like, oh, these are such amazing exceptions and they're so fantastic and it's completely different to what's happening anywhere else. And not to take away anything from those examples, they're not complete exceptions. They're part of wider um, booms, for example, the First World War and the interwar periods of the 1920s. Women's rugby has a massive boom during that period because lots of other women's sports have a massive boom during that period and it's really closely related. Equally, the 1970s, we can't imagine, it's not just women's rugby that's, um, that comes into being, there's huge explosions in many other women's sports. It's more women are getting into sport. Um, so it's really important to not look at these things in, in isolation in that way. Equally, when I think about who my audience is, sometimes I can tend to think that it's just going to be people who are interested in women's rugby, but that might not necessarily be the case, and I'm always being challenged to compare what's happening in my sport to other sports, and what looked like it was going to be a very easy task, because there's not that many examples, suddenly becomes a huge task, because you need to be aware of what's going on, not only in women's sports, but in, in the general world of sports because um, like the Olympics and multi-sports governing bodies like um, Sports Council in the UK can have a real impact on what's happening um, and suddenly you end up doing research for about 10 different projects and <laughs> you're trying yes. to just do one. <laughs> I definitely went through a phase of thinking that I had to read every single thing that had been written about um, women's history since the 1970s which is quite a lot of material <laughs> um, so that was kind of unrealistic um, but yeah you're right it's about trying to get um, a wider sense of, of the context and that's really difficult because where do you draw the line? Yeah, definitely. Um, and 
equally what I'm trying to do with my with with my story I, I'm, I'm quite aware that there's a political aspect to what I'm doing because I'm working with the World Rugby Museum and you know they're a heritage organisation so it makes me think of this word heritage and what does that really mean and the growth that we've seen in women's rugby very recently would be really underpinned by assistant heritage and people are starting to know more about the history of women's rugby and some people are starting to monetize and commercialize that story and they're not necessarily representing it in what I believe is the is the most um, in, in the widest sense of what's really going on you know as a historian we can only reconstruct parts of history and we try to do that as truthfully as possible um, as possible as possible yeah people pick out different elements out of context and don't see it as part of the wider story uh, can distort that so what I'm trying to do is create a consistent story and offer that to women's rugby going forward so that we can say this this has happened this is where we were and we can measure the progress or lack thereof against it and and kind of use that as a foot to as a foothold because you're on a collaborative doctoral program with the world rugby museum so what does that actually mean in practice what's that experience been like in um reality what it's the best thing to be perfectly honest with you so it means that i didn't come to my university and say i want to do this project the World Rugby Museum actually approached Montford University, who had an expert in rugby history there at the time, and said, we, we want to know more about women playing rugby. We don't understand the phenomenon enough to present it to the public. And um, they then managed to get the funding together, which means that I'm on a funded PhD, and I applied for it as a job. And I was very, very lucky to get this position. It also means that I always have this public-facing side of my work, which I think is a massive benefit. Obviously, in some ways, it adds a little bit to the workload, um, but I want to make sure that my work is usable for the museum, and the museum have given me incredible access to their resources and everything that they've got in terms of collection and contacts, and they've been really, really helpful, which has definitely given me a massive step forward. and it just means that my output is a little bit more public focused. Yeah. Equally, in terms of an academic job side of things, you need to think about the academic output. <laughs> um, so sometimes I drop the ball on one to pick up on the other, and I always feel like I'm juggling a lot of plates in the air at the same time. Um, but I think it opens a lot of different doors. So is there a permanent exhibition now at the World Rugby Museum on women's rugby? Yes. Yeah, there's part of the... Um, Part of the collection is dedicated to the women's rugby and from uh, the museum's organised chronologically as you move around and after the um, 1980s case women's rugby is actually fully integrated into the um, into the whole collection so the Six Nations collection is all about the men's and women's, the World Cups is about the men's and the women's World Cups um, in terms of the um, what do you call it, not the decoration of the museum but the Paneling, I guess. Oh, yeah, the layout, maybe. The, the layout. Yeah. It's basically, they've integrated the sources, and it's really important um, from my perspective that they've done that because in the museum previously, they've had one example where they had a women's rugby case separately, and then they tried it where they integrated all of the sources, and people felt that they weren't showing the women's rugby story independently, despite the fact they had more. Um, 
more objects on display relating to women's rugby because it was kind of subsumed within the whole, people couldn't see it. So what they've done in this new iteration, which was only opened in um, 2018, um, is to have a separate women's rugby case and the integration, which shows that women's rugby is on an equal footing to men's rugby, but also is slightly different and has this different history that needs to be recognised. That's great. I think that's quite a diff- difficult balancing act in a way, isn't it? Because we want to say that women's sports have this kind of unique and interesting history and bring that to light, but we don't want it to just become um, kind of ghettoised almost. Um, and I suppose we should feel that almost as historians as well, um, which was something I was thinking about when you were talking about um, kind of writing the history of women's rugby and having to be aware of what's happening in other women's sports, but also presumably having to be very aware of what's happening in men's rugby, which must massively affect um, what's happening in the women's game, because obviously, in my example of cricket, um, I felt that I had to be an expert on the history of men's cricket, and only then could I go, right, and this is what's happening in women's cricket, and try and integrate it rather than it just being, here's an add-on, which I still think maybe we haven't got to yet in women's sports history. I don't know if you, what you think about that. It's, it is really hard, isn't it? Because, um, you know, we're kind of we're making this debate about whether we're adding things in, we're rewriting mm. stories, or we're integrating stories. But it's not our fault that those stories were silenced previously or marginalised. Um, and in a way, we kind of need to observe why those stories were marginalised and in what context so that you can show the power dynamics of what's going on. Um, I, th- I think it's a really difficult task that we've got at the moment, but you know, the field of women's sports history has um, definitely grown over the recent period, and that's and that can only be a good a good thing, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you still um, do you still have the experience that? Um, because I know that sort of 15, 20 years ago, people were writing saying that women's sports history was um, both marginalised within sports history and marginalised within women's history. Do you think that that's kind of still the case? I am personally looking to, um, you know, to see how I can be getting my material out into more of a women's history stream at the moment because I think that's the best way to try and get a job in the future (laughs) Um, (laughs) if you're listening out there I am a women's historian um, (laughs) specializing in rugby but um, what what we want to do is make sure that as you said there's a huge wealth of material on women's history and generally sports history has been missed out of history but this cultural turn has been really helpful um, generally for sports historians and I think that this is the time for women's sports historians to capitalise on that and the fact that women's sports more and more in the media uh, what I'm seeing is that they're making consistent mistakes because they don't know the history because it's not out there and it's easily accessible but the more people who are working on the subject the more people who get themselves out there as names that hopefully journalists can turn to media um, representations can look for us as experts and we can provide a better honest version of what's really happened um, rather than just anecdotal references or actually plain making mistakes because they don't know and that's no I'm not pointing fingers and saying that that was wrong it's just that that information wasn't available to the public and that's kind of how I see my job at the moment is to get that information out to the public as soon as possible once I've completed the PhD. 
So you saw the PhD advertised by DMU and the World Rugby Museum. Yeah. Um, what made you decide to apply, and why do you think that you got the <laughs> you got the gig? Am I allowed to ask that? Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, actually, I saw it shared via um, a women's rugby blog site, ScrumQueens.com, um, and it literally came up on my Facebook because somebody shared it. Because you're a rugby player. Because I play rugby. Yeah. Um, so I started playing rugby when I went to university in 2009. Um, so I've been playing for 10 years now and I was actually, I had completed my studies, I'd finished my masters and I was, uh, had, a, had my first real job, my graduate job um, and, and I wasn't necessarily looking to, to go back into academia but I was looking to change jobs and this position came up and everything in the advert just screamed me at me. And I said, if I don't get this, then uh, there's no point in me existing. This is exactly what I was made to do because it combined my dual pleasures of history and rugby. Um, and I'd previously done a, a bachelor's in French and history and I completed my master's in medieval French literature, but I focused on gender and representation of childhood masculinity. So I had a lot of gender studies background, I had a history background, um, I had the balance of academic and rugby interests and I think that was why I was the successful candidate because it's hard, um, I can't imagine that there are a huge number of other people who combine history and women's rugby to the same extent that I do. Do you think being a player has given you a unique perspective when you're studying the sport? In either a kind of, has it made it harder or easier? Do you know what? There's positives and challenges, definitely. So sometimes when you're in an oral history interview and people say, you know, because they're talking about something that you do know, but you need it on the tape. So it's very <laughs> difficult to remind yourself that you have to play dumb and say, could you explain that some more for me? Um, because yes, I do know what the drinking culture's like and I do know what some of the songs sound like, but you know, if you could sing them and if you could explain that for me, that would be much better than me saying my experiences of it. Um, equally, having that natural affinity has really helped with the oral histories and I've had um, an amazing amount of support from the women's rugby community that I'm a part of, which is very much a local, um, not an elite level at all. And I have uh, tried to focus the project on more elite level rugby. So, but having that groundswell of community support has been really helpful and got it out there and allowed me to access some of those elite players. I know we had some of your teammates coming along to your paper at the seminar, yeah. which was great. Um, so that was really interesting actually to have them there. Um, yeah, the women's rugby community has put me up on sofas and given me spare rooms whilst I've been doing this PhD and dotting around all the country and different um, and different countries in fact and it's been really really amazing how much people have really stepped up and said that they they want this project to it to exist so that gives me a lot of um, drive to complete it. That's great. Your paper at that seminar um, focused on the 1994 Women's Rugby World Cup. Um, listeners can actually um, go back and listen to that because it was the first ever podcast that we released I think but do you want to just give a quick taster in case people didn't hear that? Yeah, sure. So the 1994 Women's Rugby World Cup is the second Women's Rugby World Cup that ever took place and it was actually um, titled the Women's Rugby World Championship as there was a misunderstanding over um, what was allowed in terms of by the International Rugby Board, which was a male-dominated um, and male-orientated international rugby governing body. Um, the original competition was due to take place in Holland um, and 
a series of events occurred that meant that the IRB banned the Holland event and the Scottish women who were going to be competing at a World Cup for the first time when they heard this news were absolutely devastated and decided to rally together and organise a World Cup with less than 90 days notice. Um, 12 of the 16 originally registered teams did compete. Um, it's the first time that England won the Women's Rugby World Cup and it was a financial success which is absolutely unheard of in international women's tournaments in rugby at this time. Um, and it's a really, really fascinating story. So that's what I went into a little bit more in detail in that podcast. It was a great paper, um, and I would recommend going back and listening to it. Um, was that the first full-length seminar paper that you'd given? And um, So I actually gave a 40-minute presentation at um, the International Sports History and Physical Education Society conference the year before, um, because I... Um, so that's called Ishpes, um, and that was in Germany that year. And basically, I had rather naively entered their early career scholar essay competition. Um, and my supervisors were rather alarmed when I said that I sent it in because I hadn't told them what I was doing it. And um, they were like, oh, this is quite a big deal, you know, just, just, just to be aware, don't expect anything from it. And I ended up winning. That's amazing. <laughs> so I had to give a, a keynote speech wow. at the conference. Um, which was a fantastic experience but it actually ended up being that that was one of my first presenting experiences as a PhD student mm-hmm. was a 40 minute lecture so I've actually found it quite difficult going back to 20 minute assigned papers <laughs> you're like no no I will give the keynotes from now on <laughs> because you can really get into something in 40 minutes um, <laughs> so actually doing the seminar again and and it being 40 minutes, you take it very seriously. I spent a lot of time preparing that paper. Um, I had attempted to give some of that paper as a 20-minute um, conference paper at the British Sports um, Society, Society for Sports History previously, and it had gone horribly wrong because I just couldn't fit it all into 20 minutes. And I'd also tried a new presentation style that just didn't work for me. But anyway, having the chance to do it as a 40-minute talk was really, really great because I practiced it a lot. I knew it was going to fit the time scale. And then it ended up being a very intimate space that we were presenting in, so I felt very comfortable and able to speak for that length of time. That's great. Um, And I know that you recently had an article published in the International Journal of the History of Sport on women's rugby in... 1920s France, um, which you kind of alluded to earlier because it was about the beret. Beret, yeah. yes. Um, we obviously hear quite a lot of horror stories on Twitter about academic publishing and reviewer two and things like that. How did you find that experience? Um, it is laughable that it, things do tend to follow the reviewer one will say a very short um, comment, generally positive, and reviewer two has a lot of things to go into. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I found, again, it really challenged me to be writing for a much wider audience because you can't assume knowledge of, of anything when you're writing the article. Um, I had put in several kind of sentences um, that made a lot of sense to me because I've read a lot of rugby histories and men's rugby history, um, but they weren't translatable to a wider audience and someone who clearly had no knowledge of rugby was one of my reviewers. And equally, I can't expect to get many reviewers working on rugby um, looking at my work. Um, there are not very many sports historians working on rugby. So um, it really challenged and pushed me to improve my work a lot um, going forward from that. And I tried to take that into account 
going forward with my PhD as well, trying to make sure that it is accessible in that way. Equally, it can be frustrating when you don't have somebody who's, who you feel is as much an expert. For example, I wrote about the Dick Kerr's women's team, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's regularly um, cited in, in books and journals with Dick, comma, Kerr. Um, I had done that and it was pulled up by reviewer two as a grammatical error. Oh no! <laughs> so I had to kind of go back and find some other historians who'd used that and, yeah. sh- and show three or four different quotes saying, this is how they've written it, so I'm also going to write it like this. Is that okay? Um, and it's quite hard to get that balance when you've never done it before. You don't know how to write a response to the reviewers. How much can you push back on and say, no, I do agree with this, this is really important, whilst also taking into account all of the amazing points that they've made that help you improve your work. Um, ultimately, the reviewing process, as stressful as it is, is really helpful, and I feel my article that I've finally um, had published is a lot better than the article that I submitted. I do think responding to peer review is something that in academia we don't do very well, and maybe we should kind of provide some training. Some we should provide some training on that because it's a, it's yeah. So I think it's a difficult process, however established you are. Yeah, it was my first time going through the peer review process, so that was all brand new for me, and I wasn't really sure where to reach out for information and support, and you end up getting a lot of support from your own peer group, um, which can be helpful but everybody has hugely different experiences um, so I think some sort of you know just talking about these things that we expect as part of academia um, sometimes those aren't those aren't necessarily as evident to a student yeah, coming yeah. at it um, I've just seen recently that people are talking about um, not they would refuse to take a PhD student if they hadn't ever emailed them but when I started I had no idea that you should email it took me a lot of courage to email my eventual supervisor and have that conversation but I didn't know that you could just do that I don't know the kind of academic etiquette do you nobody sends you a little book saying this is what you need to do yeah (laughs) yeah somebody needs to write that they've made a fortune um and your so your article on um, Barrett was partly made possible by a grant you received from BSSH um British Society of Sports History which I'm deliberately plugging um because um those uh research grants for both uh, postgraduate students and early career researchers um, are currently open for application um, and the closing deadline for the next round is 31st of January. Um, you can find more information on the BSSH website sportinhistory.org and click on the funding tab. Um, so now that I've plugged it, Lydia, can you say about why you think that other people um, might want to apply? What was your experience? Definitely. The BSSH grant was really, really helpful for um, improving that article and also for giving me the, um, the genesis of another article that I'm hoping to get out in the future. Um, the application process was really straightforward and it was actually very helpful to think exactly what you want to get out of the research trip, what your output's going to be, um, and then having received the grant, needed to write a report at the end, which was actually a really nice time to reflect on what I'd achieved over that week, because you can come home exhausted and think, oh, I didn't do quite enough, or I focused too much on this and not on that, and actually sitting back and reflecting on it allowed me to see that it had been a very successful week, and um, I used the money to... Um, to spend four days in Paris working at uh, an archive that hadn't previously been accessed by researchers, so it was information that I could not have got from any other source. Um, and it really informed that the podcast that we talked about for 1994, and that was one of the reasons why it was much better at the 
Institute of Historical Research than my previous attempt to give the paper <laughs> because I just didn't have the information then. Um, so that grant um, was really helpful, it was really accessible, it was very intuitive to fill out the form and equally the um, you know the people who are running the British Society for Sports History are very accessible. You can talk to people, and like Nick was in charge of the postgraduate one, um, so I just dropped him an email, and he was very helpful with giving me advice. So I'd recommend it. That's great. Um, well, I'm glad it was so easy. Um, should I, do I need to say that I'm the chair of BSSH <laughs> for full disclosure? Um, <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Lydia, for coming on the podcast. Um, for those of you who are interested, our seminar series at the IHR in London resumes on Monday the 27th of January at 6pm and our first speaker is going to be Veronica Smith from the University of York with a paper entitled Sport, Culture and Glass, sorry, Sport, Culture and Class, Stained Glass at Victoria Baths, Manchester. Um, so we hope to see some of our listeners there. Um, but for now, it's goodbye from Lydia. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. Goodbye.